All right, everybody, welcome back to another episode of Kente Corner, your favorite casual Hoya basketball podcast. I'm Bobby Bancroft. I'm joined today for the post-game DePaul edition of Kente Corner with NY Hoya. Real quick, NY, let me go over a couple things. Georgetown beats the Blue Demons 68-60. to The Hoyas improved to 8-11, and 6-8 in the Big East. Those six wins, while very surprising, they also are... It's the second best showing under Patrick Ewing uh, in Big East Conference play. Javon Blair was a late scratch, as far as we know. Chudier Belay filled in and recovered from his poor performance against UConn. He had a double-double, 19 points, 10 rebounds. Jamarco Pickett and Dante Harris each had 14. Patrick Ewing went deep into the bench as 10 guys played. They all played in the first half, actually, and they made sure that they beat DePaul in the only meeting this season. They've split the last four years, and unless they play, I guess, in the Big East tournament, which is going to be pretty unlikely given where they're going to be on each side of the bracket, Georgetown looks like they're going to take the season series with DePaul. Before we get into the game, it's a Saturday afternoon. How's it going, man? What's up, man? Uh, it's going fine. It's it's. I, I like these noon games, these 1 o'clock games on Saturdays that end in W's because it it just leads to a nice, pleasant, relaxing rest of the weekend, and you can just get on with the day with a smile on your face. It did. So there's a lot to unpack from this game. Um, Afterwards, I was actually late. I have kind of chaos going on in my house between kid and a couple dogs. We have a new dog, which I don't know how great of a decision that is right now for us. But so I was kind of in chaos. I was late to Patrick Ewing. I did get a question in, but I felt like it's pretty likely everyone's kind of focused on the Blair stuff. So I don't want to go back to, you know, negative type stuff. So I just asked about the performance in the first half of all the different parts, but I saw Kareem Copeland from the Washington post tweeted that Ewing said it was just a coach's decision, which we knew from the broadcast and that Blair will be back next game, which is the home finale Tuesday against Xavier. So it kind of was a bummer way to start the game. You know, they get business done in Chicago, one game road trip, come home with the W, 6-8 and eight in the league. They're not going to finish last. It was kind of an interesting game to watch, to be honest. Yeah. For, for all the folks who wonder what this team would look like without Blair, without Pickett, we got a sense of what it would look like without one of those players. Uh, and it was, it was interesting. Uh, sometimes it was uh, more or less what you would expect. We would struggle to score at times. Uh, and... In other situations, I thought our defense looked much better, and I thought our 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 passing looked looked pretty decent. So it was a bit of two two different sides of a coin here, but uh, it was certainly nice to see a lot of the younger guys get some run, some different lineups, some different defenses too. I give Ewing credit for mixing in a bit of zone, using some new bodies out there, and uh, overall, I mean, my biggest takeaway from this game is actually that we looked fairly coordinated on defense, which was pleasant. Yeah, I think you're right about the defense. I think you're right about seeing a lot of players out there that we don't normally seen. A lot of times on this podcast, we talk about how we wish we saw more of Berger and more of Sibley. We don't usually go further down than that, although Clark did not play, and that's kind of one of the guys that does get mentioned. But, we, you know, we saw Malcolm Wilson – um, we saw Colin Holloway, who actually had a pretty nice post move and scored off of it. 
So I think that we saw a bit of what we're always looking for. It's just that it's not necessarily no Blair. It's just maybe a little bit less Blair. But it was, you know, it's a big deal. I know DePaul has had probably one of the weirder seasons in COVID. You know, they weren't picked last. Georgetown was. They didn't play till almost January, which, you know, I'm not going to make excuses for them. But, you know, they haven't been a very good team for, I mean, shoot, I don't know how long we want to go back for, 15 years or so. I think they last made the tournament in 04. So it's not like they were going to, you know, contend for the tournament. But at the same time, that couldn't have helped. But Georgetown did what they had to do. And I almost felt like it, it, it almost seemed like, you know, I know this wasn't what was happening, but a lot of fans displeasure is, you know, always, at least on me on Twitter comes back to why isn't Berger playing? Why isn't Clark playing? Why isn't, you know, so-and-so. And it's almost like he coached that first half, like, Hey, you know what? Here you go. Here's everybody. And then we're going to figure out what, what's, what works best. And we're going to play a more traditional second half. And they had 19 turnovers, I think 12 or 11 of them were in the first half. So things got a little bit better. Is that, I mean, obviously he wasn't coaching to shut us up, but it did seem a little bit that that's what he was kind of giving, like giving us a look at. Yeah. The, the first half of this game, we, we've said this repeatedly, how this sort of just looked like a Kenner league contest over the summer. To me, the yeah. first half was looked more like one of those practice games, the one or two you have before the season starts, one of those exhibitions, yeah. just to see what kind of lineups work and free-flowing, not, a, not, not very functional at either end, lots of poor shots, lots of turnovers. The, the first half on both sides was, it was a little gross to watch. Uh, we, we started putting things together uh, a bit in the second half, especially when we went on that huge scoring run, mainly led by Pickett, but uh, it it was a struggle in that first half, but a lot had to do with just our the one problem we've had consistently in every single game this year, which is turning the ball over in largely incomprehensible ways. But, you know, the second half, DePaul came out, I guess they just hit one or two. I think they just hit a three. So it was 30 to 26 at the half. Paul hits a three. They get to 30, 29. And then Georgetown goes on a big run a huge run. And during that run, we saw Pickett didn't do much in the first half. We saw him hit three straight threes. He also had a block. I think he had a turnover, but I mean, it was just an incredible run. Like you said, without Blair, where is that sort of it going to come from as soon as it got tight? Cause Georgetown was pretty much had to Paul at arm's length for most of the first half, despite these unusual lineups that we don't see in games. And it was like, Oh, look, here we go. Cause I was wondering, and maybe I don't know if you thought this as well, that, where we watch is DePaul just terrible or is Georgetown going to get punished at some point for not putting a team away in the first half DePaul shot 31%. Okay. And you think, man, like this team's probably going to pick it up a little bit. It's not hard to get much, you know, it's not hard to do better than that. So you wonder did Georgetown do enough? And I thought Pickett led the way. Yeah. Look, I, I, I'll just, I'll come back to, to the defense. Like, okay. I, I thought our defense looked much better. I thought our guys hustled and communicated more. I thought DePaul took a lot of bad shots. There were there were three or four times where there were there was some blown coverage leading to wide open DePaul layups, especially in the last couple minutes of the game where we decided to just give them some free points. But on balance, I I liked our length on defense and I liked how we really forced DePaul into some bad situations. Even some of the shots they got 
was, was Charlie Moore hero ball where he was shooting from very deep or just getting to the basket on his own and throwing up a floater. And that's, that's what he occasionally does. That's why he was the biggest player of the week last week. Yeah. But, but on balance, I thought we left DePaul in a lot of bad situations, getting bad looks and we just looked bigger down low. The, just the combination of delay, picket, Wahab or Ego Efe, and then, you know, having a relatively tall guy, on the perimeter too was, was helpful. It was a good look for us. I thought, I thought this, this was one of our better, if not best defensive games of the season. Yeah. And I think what I would say to that is I agree that that's the way it looked. I would want to see a little bit more of this to figure out how much was Georgetown and how much was DePaul. True. Yeah. I mean, DePaul is very raw. DePaul's not great, but it, it was it was good. As you said, we, we more or less controlled this game for, for 35, 37 minutes. Even, even when the game was close in the beginning of the second half, you just got the sense that Georgetown was going to eventually pull away. And it was, it was a comfortable second half that hasn't happened off often with us. It happened against the, against Butler most recently, but it's, Look, it's refreshing to have a game like this, especially without our leading scorer. Georgetown did all of this without its without its leading scorer. So, if it was a little messy at times, that's that's to be expected. But the kids played hard and and came away with the W. They did, and so I put this out there on Twitter at Bobby Bancroft. I'm sure if you're listening, it's probably a a, a pretty uh, the Venn diagram of listening to this and following me on Twitter is probably. Uh, pretty pretty close but anyway what one of the things i track and i think we've talked about this is georgetown teams under ewing scoring less than 80 and scoring 80 or more and what they did today which is why i'm a little bit hesitant to take big picture stuff from this so 68 points is now the fewest that georgetown scored in a big east win under ewing it was 69 so it's about the same um which they did against st john's in his first season Georgetown is now nine and 39 under Patrick Ewing when they score less than 80. So my point about this, not to just update my fancy Excel spreadsheet is to just point out that how unusual this type of win was. And that's why maybe if it was against a different opponent, I might be making bigger assumptions or bigger um, conclusions, I should say, sorry. So how much of this is DePaul? I don't know, but under 70 is crazy. I mean, usually they don't get to 80. They're kind of, you know, because when Georgetown scores more than 80, or I'm sorry, 80 or more, they're 16 and seven under Ewing, which is a 70% winning percentage, which is, you know, kind of where you want to be. So I just wanted to throw that in. Are you surprised by that number at all? I know you're not a geek like me that's tracking that exact stat. No, I, I think it's an interesting stat. You've mentioned this before, but it, it points to a problem that we've known all along for the last four years, which is our defense has been awful. Yeah. And especially our perimeter defense. And so if we're not putting up a lot of points, right. our team's going to be in trouble. And I, I think it's look that you said 68 points, fewest points scored by a Georgetown team that wins in the Ewing era. Yeah. I, I think it also speaks to the fact that our defense looked pretty good today. And we also, there, there were some steals in this game. There were some, we forced some turnovers that led to runouts and those runouts. Yeah only led to baskets like probably less than 50% of the time. There were 
there was there was some sloppiness on our end uh, in transition, but that's been a rarity this season. Actually, forcing steals that lead to fast breaks. So it, it was nice to see. There were just a lot of hands, a lot of movement, a lot of good rebounds. Once again, we got back on the right side of the rebounding battle after getting shellacked by UConn. So it it was nice to see a huge rebounding advantage. It was nice to see us getting to the free throw line again. When we have more free throws than our opponent, when we out-rebound them, we we tend to win. I'm glad you brought that up. This is the third straight game, and Blair played the last two, although he'd been struggling. This is the third straight game this season, and only fifth time overall in 19 that Georgetown attempted more free throws than three-pointers. They were 7 for 17 from three, and they were, I mean, 19 for 21 from the line. That's just That's just great basketball. It was nice to see, especially when we were struggling to get good shots. If you can't get good shots or you can't hit your shots, get to the free throw line. And we we did a good job of that. Unfortunately, guys like DeLay and Ego F.A. and Harris and Pickett knocked down their free throws for the most part. So when I'm looking at this, obviously, DeLay, just night and day from the UConn game, he had 19 and 10 against Connecticut. He had five points, five fouls was pretty much a non-factor, which, as we know, you know, Blair played last game, but he was kind of a non-factor as well. So you have Blair and Belay non-factors, probably not going to beat anybody of any consequence. Who'd you have for your uh, player of the game? I think it's really hard. I think, you know, obviously the point totals are, are right there, but when you when I look at it, Pickett, Harris, and Belay, it's probably Belay, but man, I've been just falling in love with Dante Harris's ability to split defenders, run the fast break, you know, finish at the hoop. Um, who'd you have? It's probably a delay in this game. Yeah. I thought he was the difference. I mean, Dante Harris was great. Don't get me wrong. I, right. He was something like five for 13 from the floor, but in his defense, a lot of those were late in the shot clock where he needed to make something happen. And so he, he put it up, but uh, nevertheless, he didn't shoot particularly well from the floor today, but, he managed to get to the line. He had, what, five assists? Yeah. Which was very impressive. Four turnovers, not great. I thought that the last three minutes of the game, he in particular was a little bit sloppy, especially when he was, you know, 30 seconds left driving to the basket uh, instead of just taking it out and coughing the ball up twice in the last couple of minutes. So I, I thought um, – but, but as you say, overall, it's, it's so nice to have a floor general again. Or yeah. ar- arguably the best floor general we've had since Markel Starks. It's it, it's it's good to see that, and he's feisty on defense. He plays hard. Delay, obviously his stat line is great. Would you say nineteen points, ten rebounds? I got to the line a lot. Eight the, times. The reason yeah. I give him, what'd you say? Yeah, he was seven for eight. Yeah, the 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 reason I would give him the nod in this game is for what he didn't do. He didn't take a lot of bad shots. Five and, for nine. And he didn't commit a lot of bad fouls. And those have those have happened. And where we've struggled and where he's struggled in particular against UConn, uh, he, he's, he's taken some bad shots. He tends to force things. But he's, he's sort of at his best when he's taking wide open threes or when he's cleaning stuff up in the paint and, and not sort of trying to dribble and force up in a mid-range shot or shoot threes with hands in his face. And so I think he did a good job of, of 
passing out of those situations. And I, I got to say, overall, our passing looked pretty good. Inside out is still a challenge at times, but guys were making the extra pass, particularly during that run in the second half. It was it was refreshing to see. It was refreshing to see. I have a complete sidebar with Dante Harris, but maybe we'll come back to it or bring it up another time. I don't want to totally derail the podcast because I feel like it could. A little bit of, I guess, a, a teaser. Um, one, of the, one of the biggest plays of the game is kind of a just an insignificant two-pointer. In the second half, probably in the last, like I said, I was dealing with chaos in my basement. Probably in the last eight minutes, I want to say. I want to try and get exact as possible. Sibley made like a pull-up jumper. He pulled up, guy was in his face, and just knocked it in. I think he only had four points. He was two for two. But am I wrong in thinking like that was that was like a wow moment for next year and go, going forward? I don't know if either. I, so both of his baskets in this game sort of resembled the three he hit against UConn just before halftime where it's sort of like a broken play and he somehow ends up with the ball in his hands with the shot clock going down and, and he shoots it and you're like, oh, the ball went in. That's nice. Yeah. I still want to see, obviously, a lot more from him within the flow of the offense because it seems like the shots he's getting are just, uh, like I said, just sort of broken plays. But give him credit for the few open looks he gets. He, he knocks them down. And he, he's active on the defensive end. And he seems to know what he's doing. So, you know, I thought from what little we saw from him today, I thought I thought he was pretty good. With Berger today also, I thought he was he was okay on the defensive end. I, I would have expected, did Berger have something like 10 minutes in this game? Yeah, 11. Yeah, you would have expected at some point that he'd get an open look from three or just get some sort of uh, open shot. But it's not the way it worked. I, I would also like to see kind of – I want to see some plays in the, play, in the flow of the offense that aren't just move and run around. And uh, But Berger is the sort of guy who has a pretty shot, and it would be nice to see a couple of screens and trying to get him open from time to time. In the same way we we do that with Blair, although to be fair, half of the time with Blair, there are, he just shoots threes in transition or with his little James Harden step back. And – they're not exactly in, in the flow of the offense. So I've kind of come around a little bit on this game, stepped back and analyzed, kind of decompressed, you know, realized that the first half, because my, my initial thoughts were, wow, four years in, this is what the Georgetown DePaul game looks like. Okay. You know, it wasn't just me. There was people tweeting that I've got Georgetown and Hoyas up on my tweet deck. So I'm seeing people I don't follow just kind of do like drive-bys and stuff. And it was a lot of that stuff and of that nature. And you couldn't help but watch the first half. But I do think that when you put all those different pieces in there and you're just, you know, Blair's not there and you're just playing everyone except Kobe Clark, which who the heck knows. I think you have to expect it to be really choppy and bad. And it didn't help that DePaul was also equally as bad. So I think when you're watching the game and sort of getting frustrated how terrible it looks, well, only half of it's Georgetown's problem. And a lot of, I think, what their problem was is just getting a chance to play with each other in an actual game. So that's kind of, I kind of came back a little bit. You know, the second half looked a lot better than the first half. The second half was, I think, some more normal substitution patterns. Were you having any sort of ledge moments yourself or no? No, I just I thought the first ten minutes of this game was 
at times disgusting to watch. Too many okay, turnovers. So you're kind of right very, there with very me. choppy. Okay. Yeah, no, but but my overall takeaway was I thought our, again I thought our defense looked refreshingly good. It was interesting to see see us give some minutes to the freshmen. I liked I liked seeing all of that, and for the most part, we controlled 35 minutes of this game, so it's it's hard to complain. Yeah, too much. The other thing I liked was it was clear that DePaul was using a similar approach that we saw in the second Creighton game and, and UConn, just collapsing on Wahab, doubling him every single time and forcing him to pass the ball. I thought Wahab actually did a pretty good job of passing out of the post. Arguably, he passed out of the post, post more times in this game than he has all season. So, uh, you know, I'm not sure he helped his uh, assist-to-turnover ratio very much he in the game. He didn't. But... <laughs> What is it? Still two assists and what forty-one turnovers at this point? No, he has three assists this year. Three assists. All right, so he got his third assist in the last in the last couple of games. But I I did think he did a nice job of passing out of the post. I think it's got to it's got to come a little more instinctively, a little quicker. But he's he's getting there, and hopefully that's something that looks much better next year. But his ability to pass out of the post and then having our perimeter guys flip it around the perimeter led to some open carry and Harris threes. And that's where I thought we looked, we looked at our best. So kudos to kudos. I think uh, we need, I think we need the hockey assist column for Wahab because I think he had at least one or two where, you know, he made the pass to the guy that made the pass. One more thing about this game. I want to talk about Dickie Simpkins. I think this is a box score. That's going to be, like I said, it's very odd for the 68 points in the win. But when do you think <laughs> when do you think the next time we're going to get a game where both Dante Harris and TJ Berger record a block shot? Like, this is a collector's item. I mean, <laughs> hopefully we see it many more times in the next three years. <laughs> so, I don't know. But the, TJ, TJ looked not comfortable out there, but he looked okay. I mean... Blair, who just went over a thousand points, he just recently got his first block in college. You know, so sometimes these guards, they just don't get. It's just not part of what they do, and they're not, you know, down low. Because Berger got his block on on a fast break. I can't remember how Harris got his, but that's just one of the things that really just pops out. Like, wow, okay, okay. I'm actually, um, I'm actually surprised that that was Blair's first career block because he likes letting letting ball handlers get by him so he can go for the swipe behind yeah. which is usually not a successful approach uh so I'm, I'm surprised that he usually there hasn't been at least one time where he gets the block after allowing like a guard to get by him yeah i told him about it and i said hey are you aware of this and he said no which i believe it but at the same time i would think at some point you're like hey you know what because i i don't think he's a I don't think he's a terrible defender. So, would have, and he's not like he's you know five ten either. So, I would have thought at some point playing this many minutes, a block would have just sort of happened. But anyway, he has it, so he he figured it out. So, believe it or not, I ended up on Dickie Simpkins's you know sports reference page for ba- for college basketball and for the pros because he was sort of speaking about himself, in my opinion, in a way that. I don't necessarily remember him being, I was, you know, I was a kid when he was in college and I remember that it was a period where Georgetown actually lost 
a bunch of Big East tournaments. And they lost Providence. They lost to Providence in 94. I think that was his senior year. And he was definitely a good college player. He got over 1,000 points. And, you know, he was a local D.C. guy. But I, I, I took offense. I, I almost wish I could just text Othello Harrington that, you know, Dickie Simpkins is like, you know, I was looking at my chops going against Othello. Okay, Othello is a much better player than him. Agree? Yeah, Othello, I think, is a better player than him. I don't know if he was a much better player. But okay, yeah. I, I think you're right. Look, we, we had to hear at multiple <laughs> points in the game how Dickie Simpkins beat UConn and Dickie Simpkins beat Georgetown to win the biggest championship. And Dickie yeah. Simpkins, Simpkins turned down Georgetown and turned down UConn and decided <laughs> to stay with Providence. And yeah. I mean, he was Dickie Simpkins was a very good Big East player. Sure. Um, you know, but we we get it. I mean, did did you also know that John Thompson coached Patrick Ewing and that Patrick Ewing went to three Final Fours? And I mean, it's it's sort of the same thing every single game. At one I, point, at, at some point, the shtick will get old, but it's been four years and it's still happening. Yeah. Well, so this is back when, like I said, I was a kid and I'd been following Georgetown since Alonzo's freshman years, kind of when I got into it, which was, you know, I basically, I basically jumped on the stock like a, you know. It wasn't at an all-time high, but it was definitely pretty high when I jumped on. And there were some bumps in the road um, during my my formative years and through my adult years. But this is definitely a time where I'm just all in on the Big East. I'm all in on Georgetown. And I pit, so Providence, to win that 94 Big East title, they had to beat a pretty good Villanova team. They knocked off Connecticut, who was ranked number two at the time. They beat Georgetown in the final. And then guess what they did? They came out and just laid an egg against Alabama. So this is a time where I would just always pick the Big East champion to just go far because that's the two I was. I'm just this kid that loves the Big East, loves Georgetown, and I'm all in. I was all in on Seton Hall. Like, I think it was 92 or 93. They couldn't get out of They lost Western Kentucky in either the first or second round. So this is a time where I was just constantly being let down by these teams that I disliked all season, but then out of respect – would have them going far in my bracket. So I kind of just wanted, you know what, Dickie, how did, how did it go after the Big East tournament? Cause it didn't go that great. Yeah. There were some good teams back then. I mean, right around that time too, is you know, 94. Like you had the Tim Duncan was at wake with Randolph Childress and yeah. Joe Smith and X-ray hip were at Maryland. And I don't know why I'm focusing on ACC schools, but there were also, there were some, there's some good Big East and ACC games and schools at the time oh for sure for sure for sure but but yeah i just uh i got a little a little bit you know and then he said like he dunked on dikembe like i have a hard time believing that like maybe dikembe was in the neighborhood you know what i mean like i'm just i want to see the film of him just putting one through while while dikembe just kind of like you know just takes it i have a hard time believing that happened but you know what dicky simpkins well and <laughs> in a language he can understand we could just say hashtag full of <laughs> <laughs> yeah and, and then dickie simpkins though pretty good nba career as far as rings he was on those bulls teams he got a couple rings and he was a, look he he was a serviceable nba guy he he had a really good career it's, it's hard to knock him he's uh, i just i think the, the low point in my relationship with dickie simpkins not that i have a personal one is <laughs> i'm just remembering back to our game against Marquette when you had, you know, ex perimeter shooter who was just knocking down three after three and he couldn't stop fawning, um, which was about four years ago, I want to say. 
Um, it was probably Matt Carlino or somebody like that. Or Rousey or somebody. Every year. Or Rousey. Both of them. But one thing I want to point out, out about Diggy Simpkins in this game, talk about mailing it in for uh, what little work is required. His keys <laughs> to the game, probably the, the the worst effort, any keys to the game I've ever seen. His two keys to the game for Georgetown were play well on O and D, and he clarified that was offense and defense, and don't underestimate DePaul, and the word underestimate was spelled incorrectly. Obviously, that's not his fault, the production fault, but um, <laughs> just in general, yeah, don't underestimate DePaul. I don't think it's a problem for our team, which is, you know, was, was projected to finish last in the conference. Uh, but play well on offense and defense. You might as well just say score more points than the other team. That That is very important when you're playing if you want to win. You know, I, before you started to say that, I was getting a little concerned that his keys to the game were going to align with what I wrote in the casual Hoya game thread. So I'm lucky that I did at least above what Dickie Simpkins did. So I feel pretty good about that. Although and one of my keys to the but, game was get Blair back on track. So... I mean, maybe we did get him back on track. Sitting out this game, maybe he'll come out with a renewed focus and lead us to the promised land in the next couple of weeks. Who knows? Maybe he will get back on track because of, because of this. But I also noticed in one of the things you pointed out in your preview was uh, the exciting names of the players on the Paul team. And I, I just thought it was one or two guys, but uh, we're talking about maybe four or five just exceptional names on this squad. <laughs> Uh, you you pointed out Kobe Elvis, which is a marvelous name. Yeah. Romeo Weems. Yeah. Yeah. Done. Romeo Weems. But then my two favorites. When <laughs> when Kobe Elvis is probably the third or fourth best name on your team, you know you've you've got an all names team. I, I we had Pauly. Uh, Pauly Cap. <laughs> Pauly Pauly Cap, who plays for DePaul. So you could get in these situations where the announcers are saying, uh, DePaul's Pauly Polycap shoots a three. Unbelievable <laughs> name. And and yet the best one was probably Cavassier McCauley. <laughs> Fantastic name. And I got to give it to Dickie Simpkins here, breaking out the Busta Rhymes reference. And instead of saying pass the Cavassier, pass it to Cavassier. Fantastic. Great job by Dickie Simpkins. Yeah, so on that part, I guess I did mail it in a little bit. I've seen a little bit of DePaul, and it seems like whenever I tune in, Kobe El- Kobe Elvis is doing something, and immediately, I, m- I remember I was actually, I think I was texting or talking to Ben, and I was just like, are you serious with this kid's name, Kobe Elvis? Like, I think I want to name my next kid that. You know what I mean? Like, like this is this is just incredible. But you're right. If you go a little bit deeper and do a little bit more research on the Blue Demons, there are some gems just everywhere. Like, there's enough for everybody. Hey. I mean, even one of their better players, Javon Freeman Liberty, wasn't able to play. But right. Freeman Liberty is one of the more inspiring names, too. Biggie's bracket. We had news yesterday. We knew what was going to happen. We just didn't know the order. So the Biggie's bracket, now that Connecticut's there, there's 11 teams. So you have to have three games on Wednesday. It had been a Wednesday doubleheader that Georgetown seems to just collect its mail in that doubleheader. Usually in the 8-9 game against St. John's, Georgetown has been in the 8-9 game four of the last five seasons. 
and they've played on Wednesday night, which is the first round in five of the seven seasons of the new Big East. So I feel like this news is particularly relevant for the Hoyas who are on track to be in the 8-9 game again, except probably not against St. John's. So the 8-9 game is going to be at 3 o'clock on Wednesday, and then there's going to be a doubleheader at night. Well, I guess it's a tripleheader. So you gave it 3, you gave it 6, and a game at 9. So it's I guess they're all kind of together, but usually it's like 7 and 9.30. And so... If you're in that 8-9 game and you lose, it's sort of like you weren't even in the tournament. Like, at least if you can, like, play in the game at night, the 6-11 game, you know, okay, there's been some other games. You're not the first team eliminated. It just seems like, wow, like, you could be done at 5 o'clock on that Wednesday, and it's like, did you really go to New York? Yeah, or we could... you know, have a nice little win against Butler as we did the last time we played them and shock the world in beating, beating Villanova team. We could have won the previous two times we played them. And then who knows whoever we play on Friday night would, you know, maybe it's Xavier or UConn and we could probably be competitive against one of those teams. Somehow Creighton gets upset prior to the final and, you know, and then we win the biggest title and go to the final four and, I don't want to say we're going to win at all, but Final Four seems reasonable. What do you think? I think there's definitely a chance. I think, you know, once you, <laughs> once you get Blair back and add him to this, because, you know, you got 68 points and, like, Blair scores about 16, you know, so now you're, now you're you know, getting over the 80-point barrier, which you need for your ultimate success, 70% winning percentage at that number. But, no, I, I'm not saying that I'm thinking Georgetown goes and loses. I'm just saying, like, going forward, for me, particularly if I'm I'm not going this year, but I usually go and it's like, wow, like if you're done that early, I guess part of it, if you're, if you're done that early, you can kind of just maybe hang out after you're done working and watch a little bit of the seven ten game and then go and, you know, meet up with some friends and hang out and you've got, it's not ridiculously late, but I just think in general to lose that early, the first game of the tournament where it's kind of the play in game anyway, it's just, I don't know. I guess I'm just really focused on the time. I know it doesn't matter like what time it is, but for me, I'm just thinking like conceptually, like wow. Yeah, but it, I, were you really I, there? I would, I would look at it from a different perspective, though, because okay, playing in that Wednesday night game and you win, and your reward is to play 12 o'clock the next day. Yeah, that gives you no time to rest and prepare, and you you're far less likely to put up a fight against. It's likely to be the number one seed on that Thursday afternoon. So I'm fine with the earlier games on Wednesday, but. You know, I, first of all, this year, no one's going to be there. It doesn't matter. We don't have to worry about schedules or what games we're watching physically because nobody will be there. And and second of all, we have not won a Piggies tournament game under Patrick Ewing yet. So maybe we'll just figure out how to win that first game and then and then worry about how much time we have to prepare for the next. No, you're right. Says, you're right. And says, look, says in a perfect world, about winning the biggest championship. In a, but look, you can't win it until you win one game. But in, yeah, in a perfect world. Georgetown will be the kind of team that just shows up on Thursday, right? And that's, well, not, you don't show up on Thursday, but you know what I mean? Like you play your first game on Thursday, you go up there a couple days early and deal with the league, gives out the awards and all that kind of stuff. But when you are a team that's been perennial, you know, locked into the eight, nine game, I couldn't help but just kind of dread three o'clock. Cause then you got to get up there really early. And I mean, it was always going to happen. And it does make sense because the winner of it has to play at noon. So that's the, got, it's got to be the first game. But it would be great at some point to not be an expert on 
eight, nine game scenarios and giving testimonials about what it's like to take that train back in the middle of the night and all that kind of stuff. Hey, so you haven't been on in a couple podcasts. I wanted to ask you, I asked Marcus last time, let's just say one of the seniors comes back. Now, more than one could come back or none could come back. Probably the most likely scenario. But let's just say like you and Y had the choice, like which one would you tap on the shoulder that you think would help next year's group of incoming freshmen and, you know, rising sophomores and all that stuff? Who do you think would be the most beneficial? Uh, this is this is a tough one. So I know, that's mix, why I asked you. In, in, in the mix, we're including Pickett, Billet, Carrie, and Blair. Yeah. Anyone else? I'm assuming Jalen Harris is, you know, probably right. just on to different things. Hopefully everything's fine with him and his family. So I think it would be, I think I would probably say Pickett. Okay. I, I, I don't, and I know Marcus made the point that for, for Pickett, he's played four years. He's gotten everything he's going to get out of college. He has a chance to play in Europe. So maybe he'll just want to do that and make some money. Yeah. I, I think the the person who would be the best for our team next year is Pickett. But I think it's close between Pickett and Belay. But with with Pickett, I I think I like how active he's been on defense. I like the long arms, and I liked how, I like how good he's been rebounding the ball. Obviously, he's he continues to struggle with turning the ball over. He continues to struggle with. Uh, just, just with with dribbling, but he's he's somebody you have to sort of. He, he's just a good person to have at the three. Now, I, I understand also that we have Aminu Muhammad coming in, and but but I still think Pickett is a is a decent guy to have there. But on the other hand, Belay is a good guy to have at the four. So and and I can't say. That in looking at the roster next year, I'm not sure we have a guy who is hands down going to start at the four position. So Belay may be a more natural fit for next year's team, given the the group of guys we have coming in. So it, it Belay may be the better fit. I, I think if I had a choice of keeping one, though, I'd probably keep Hickett. But who knows what's going to happen next year? Yeah, I think it's hard. I think when like obviously we're looking at it from Georgetown basketball's point of view. And obviously these student athletes, these kids have to make different decisions for themselves. So that's, you know, we're not really factoring that in, but yeah, I do think it comes down to those two guys. I also think that it's interesting. Georgetown is actually a pretty good three point shooting team, but they lose almost all of their three point shooting, right? Because Belay's turned out to be pretty good. Carrie's pretty good. We know about Pickett and Blair. You know, right now you're bringing back, like, I think Sibley's made two three-pointers. I want to say Berger's right around there. Maybe he's up to four. I think Harris is around 15. So, yeah, this, you, it kills me every year because it seems like we're saying we have no experience, and yet every year we lose a lot, our most experienced guys. Yeah. And maybe yeah. this is just the nature of the beast with transfers coming in. We always have some some fifth-year transfers. And we're going to have this awkward combination next year too in summer stocks. We're obviously going to have a lot of uh, freshmen and, and sophomores, but you can be sure at least somebody will stay and we'll have a, some sort of transfer come in and you have this, you know, this sort of, this sort of odd mix of 
of talent. But you're right. It does feel like for a team that had lots of turnover last year and seems so raw and inexperienced, we now lose a lot of experience heading into next season, depending on what happens with all these guys. Yeah, and I think that you just phrased it a really good way is that I don't have my finger on the pulse of every other team, you know? So maybe this is a problem everyone has. But even at the end of last year, it's like, well, you know, Georgetown's only playing five or six guys. But then you're like, yeah, well, um, Allen's leaving, Mosley's leaving, your seven's leaving. You know, at the time we didn't know McClung was leaving, but you know what I mean? Like for, it's like, wow, they're doing so great. You had some players. It's like, no, all the players that play are leaving. And it's kind of happening again. And, you know, it could be that this is just college basketball in, you know, the 20s, the roaring 2020s. I wanted to bring something up I know that will be near and dear to your heart and one of our favorite topics that's probably brought us together outside of Casual Hoya. Marquette was able to get a game at UNC kind of on the fly. Two weeks in a row, UNC found a game when they didn't have one, which... I would have been just loved if Georgetown could have done that. And I know I particularly wanted it to be local, George Mason or JMU. But two weeks ago, UNC tweeted out, does anybody want to play, basically? And Northeastern answered, and they beat them. And then two Jordan schools got together this week, Marquette and UNC, which is also you know a historical matchup. It was the 1977 uh, NCAA final with Marquette and Al McGuire winning. They're both Jordan brand schools, all that stuff. UNC's on the bubble, whereas Marquette's really not, but they probably should be. That's a different topic. But anyway, so Marquette goes down there and wins. And I couldn't help but see in a lot of the tweets and the recap, the AP recap, the recap on Marquette.com, whatever their website is, is that this was the 18th time UNC had lost to a non-conference team since the Smith Center opened. And I was like, 18, 18. And then I had to go back and make sure that when Georgetown went on its run to the 2003 NIT final, I know they played at Carolina, but I wasn't sure if maybe it was some weird thing where they played at Carmichael, you know, because it's an NIT game. No, no, it was at the Smith Center. And here are your... Hoya starting lineup, Brandon Bowman, Mike Sweetney, Cortland Freeman, Tony Bethel, and Gerald Riley. Off the bench, Drew Hall played 18 minutes, Daryl Owens got 12 minutes, Ashante Cook got 21 minutes, and Ryan Beal looks like he might have come in just at the end. Eshrick might have put him on the court just so he could say he played in the UNC Georgetown game. What a great memory, right? Drew Hall hit an amazing three in that game. Yeah. And I remember opening up the front door to my parents' house where I happened to be that night and just started yelling like a maniac. So this was this was the this was the win that clinched our birth in the NIT final four, which you know, in two, for for in two thousand three it was it was meaningful. <laughs> so I went over I went over the box score a little bit. I read up on this game just a little bit earlier today because I knew you were going to be on, and I knew this is a topic that we would love. We love going Eshrick era. And, you know, with eight minutes left, Georgetown Georgetown was up 10. Okay? And they never... Did it get tied? 
they never relinquished the lead. I mean, this was kind of a this was a big game. Now, if you remember college basketball back then, the year before UNC bottomed out, they were eight and twenty. Like it was just terrible. Okay, but also if you remember in two thousand five, two years after this, they win the national, they championship, the national championship and they beat yeah, this Illinois. Was Matt, this was a Matt Doherty. This was a Matt Doherty coach team. Yeah. So I remember at the time, you know, still, even though we'd been through some rough times with Georgetown, I still kind of felt the NIT was beneath me. I just want to let everyone know, I do not feel that way anyway, anymore, okay? Just so everyone's out there, I would absolutely sign up for a run to the NIT final, like, no questions asked. But at, at this time, I think I was still a little bit, you know, we weren't too far removed from the 01 run, and, you know, it seemed like they got screwed in 02, so they had Sweetney still. Um, but I still thought there was some legitimate value. They won. What would they start that run? They started that run. They won at Tennessee. Then they had to play Providence. Then they beat UNC, beat Minnesota, and they lost to Marcus Hatton. But man, like I just thought winning at UNC, I don't care if it was the NIT. It was a big deal. And when you go back and they talk about this 18, you know, they've only lost 18 games. Well, you know what, baby? One of those is to Craig Eshrick and your Georgetown Hoyas. Yeah, and I remember thinking in that game too. I remember we were up. You're right. We were up by, we we're up by ten in the second half. It was midway through the second half, and all I kept thinking about was how the previous season in that second round matchup in the Big East tournament against Miami, we were up oh. 10 midway through the second half, and we win that game. We we have a very good chance of going to the tournament. And instead, we end up losing in overtime. Uh, it was uh, it, it was dreadful. But that well, that win at UNC, you're right, was was great. Yeah, it was. I mean, it was absolutely like I said. You know, maybe if they'd beaten Akron in that game, no one cares, whatever. But I just I just remember like you know I don't I'm I'm taking this man because Georgetown in my in my fandom at that point I think Georgetown had beaten UNC like in the 1990 or 91 Big East ACC Challenge. So I, I'd i seen it, you know, but it was just pretty cool to happen. And, you know, people are like, oh, don't care about the NIT. Look, once you get that far, like, I I believe that, for instance, I don't think the Georgetown team a couple years ago was all that thrilled to be in the NIT based on how that game went. But I think that once a school, a power school wins a game or two, then it's a thing. I think that there's a lot of upsets early. Like maybe the team is let down that they're not in the NCAA tournament or they're playing a team, you know, like Princeton from the Ivy League or Harvard, you know, it was actually Harvard. Sorry, it wasn't it wasn't Princeton. I just always had Princeton on my mind. Uh, but you know what I mean? Like, I feel like once you get that far in, like it's it's a game you're tr- you're trying to win something. So I had to, I think I had some friends at the time tell me, oh, it's NIT. No one cares. I'm like, oh, it's a big deal. This is the quarterfinals. This is a big deal. If we. I think we've what have we played North Carolina twice in the last twenty years and we won both times. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. I, we 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 played them earlier in Esherick's tenure, probably in two thousand and lost, uh maybe in Hawaii. Yeah, you're right, Maui, yeah. It's actually a pretty right. close game. Yeah, oh yeah, we had a we had a chance in the last in the last five minutes for sure in that in that game. Um, We're also a few weeks from now is going to be the 20th anniversary of the Nat Burton layup. Oh man. Talk about making me feel old. I remember that. Yeah. Hey, so can I bring up my sidebar from earlier? Because this is, you know, the, there's like that, that, that there's people that write, you know, about 
if an event went a different way, like alternate realities, alternate histories, you know, all that kind of stuff. Go for it. And based on how Dante Harris has been playing recently, okay, and you brought it up, you kind of, I was going to, it's on my notes, but I wasn't sure I was going to bring it up, but you kind of really brought it up with talking about that he's maybe one of their best point guards since Markel Starks, like actual point guard, not, you know, a shooting guard that had to play point guard, all that stuff. Is, is this going to be a Tremont Waters thing again? No, 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 no. No, I mean, I wasn't. I wasn't going to mention him. Who would who would mention Tremont Waters on this podcast? <laughs> Not me. <laughs> Not me. Um, Go for it. No, when you look at the 2016-17 Hoyas, and I'm looking at their roster: LJ Peak, Jesse. What that was the one year of Rodney Pryor, um, Copeland obviously transferred, but you had Derrickson. Mosley was a freshman. I think of that team that went 14 and eight. They were 14 and 12. In February, they lost their last one, two, three, four, five. They'll, yeah, six games. Okay, I think if that team has a player like Dante Harris, because, you know, Trey Campbell played in 21 of their games. I think he had some issues. I can't remember exactly, the knee injury, or they get in a bus accident that season going to Villanova. Jagan wasn't quite ready for prime time. And, you know, Jonathan Mulmore, bless his heart, transferred in. He just wasn't, you know, the Big East talent and threat to score i think if you put dante harris on that team you get a completely different alternate universe of hoyas going forward because they georgetown's needed a guy like dante harris in my opinion for so long there's so many additions of 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 them with jt3 where it's like why isn't there a guy like this and you know credit to ewing and the staff they found one yeah well i mean look it it was I think what you can say about during throughout the JT3 era, and I am a huge JT3 fan, uh, and was not thrilled to see him leave. But his his teams were most successful whenever they had a point guard and a point forward. Yeah. And when you had capable guys at both of those positions, we were a top ten team in the country. When when you didn't have a point guard, uh, they, they they struggled. And to be fair, it was tough to attract top back backcourt players especially point guards given given our Princeton offense People I like that you that said they that were underutilized and 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 that's fair like that that that's not an unfair that's not an unfair criticism uh so th- other teams would use that to their advantage when they were trying to keep guys from from coming to us uh but we had some we still had some damn good point guards over the years everyone from from Wallace slash Sapp to Chris Wright to Markel Starks. And when we had really good point guards, we did well because when the Princeton offense broke down you, or wasn't effective, you needed someone to just break down a defense and get to the rim and drive and kick or just drive to the basket. And when we didn't have guys like that, we we really, really struggled. And that's why, to me, that's where I thought you were going with this. The biggest hypothetical is what happens if Tremont Waters doesn't decommit yeah, uh, but we've been down but, that road before. Yeah, yeah, no, but but I think what you just said is something I like to talk about with Ben. I know, and probably offline more than we have here, is that you you just mentioned it, top guys, right? Is Don was Dante Harris c- considered a top recruit? No, no, and, and that's where I think things failed in that not getting you know lesser guys finding you know the diamond in the roughs. They're not gonna necessarily. That's not 
you're you're not, you're not going to bat a very good average doing that generally. But I thought that there was too much going for players that were maybe ranked higher, but didn't kind of fit together. And I thought particularly with, you know, when I would see like lesser teams running a Princeton offense and I'd say like, why is that guy not playing for Georgetown? Like, like some of the guys Richmond would get, you know, like if you can't get like your top guy, if you can't get Kyle Anderson, if you can't get um, who's the guy that went to Washington or no, the guy that went to Kentucky uh, Patterson, like you swing and you miss at those guys, but then there's like guys below that. And I think that's where this staff just did a really good job of identifying, like, maybe we didn't get our top point guards in this class, although Tyler Beer was supposed to be part of it. Like, they saw someone like, this kid can play the way we want to play, and we value that more than maybe being ranked higher. And I think that's where it all falls apart. And I do think when I look at this roster, like, if you put, you know, I'm looking at Ken Palm right now, the last five games, you know, Moore played 65% at point guard. You know, that's just not going to get it done. And that's where I look at it. I'm like, man, like Dante Harris could have been that guy, like a guy like that. Yeah. And I mean, look, this is the, the problem you're pointing to is what Jay Wright has talked about often. After he went to his first final four, he started having a shot at some of these blue chippers and he brought in really talented guys and he had really talented teams that just didn't play together. And he yeah. said, I'm never going to make that mistake again. And so, because when he had his, uh, stretch that was comparable to JT3's worst years, he was able to eventually rebound. They gave him a bit more, uh, you know, a longer leash, some would say. And then he just decided, I, I'm I'm still going to go after, you know, talented kids, but they got to be kids who are the right fit for our program. I think, and that was always the, the question with JT3, are you recruiting guys who don't necessarily fit the system or are you, or does he need to, uh, you know, sort of change the offense to adjust to the guys he has on his team, which is probably something that Chris and Austin would say he maybe he should have done more of that. But at the same time, like that does not seem to be a barrier to recruiting for Ewing, who is just letting him go, like just run up and down the court yeah. uh, as quickly as you want. Uh, a lot of pick and roll action and that rebound move. That, that's kind of it. Right, right, exactly. It, it, I, I still would like to see more structure. I would still like to see more set plays. I, I you know, I would actually like to hear what um, guys like Nolan and Marcus have to say about, like, sort of the lack of, the lack of set plays. But at the same time, like, one of the biggest talking points against us, preventing us from getting some of these top recruits is, is, is no longer an issue. Uh, so we, we, should be able to get guys uh, on short notice, even grad transfers who can fit into this offense pretty seamlessly because they don't have to worry about the nuance of, of learning the Princeton offense. Uh, so we'll, we'll see. Yeah, no, it's just something that, you know, I couldn't help but think like, wow, when they first, you know, when Don, the Dante Harris recruitment kind of came out of nowhere. And I happen to know some people that do Tennessee prep, work Tennessee recruiting so I had this guy Andre Whitehead on and he was just like wow this is out of nowhere I did I do have some contacts in college um, coaching circles and they were I you know they were saying look you know this is definitely a kid that's got potential little surprise Georgetown jumped on him and you know we'll never know what would have happened in a year where you know Jalen stays the whole time or if Tyler Beard shows up like we think but you know they took the chance on a kid that they thought fit what they wanted to do. He decided to try and play at a level that, you know, 
was probably different than some of the other offers he was getting. And it seems like it's really worked out. Yeah, look, I, and I think on balance, point guards have have done well under Ewing. Guys like Akinjo, Terrell Allen, now Dante Harris, uh, you know, they struggled, you know, struggled with with Mulmore and, and and Dickerson. But now that Ewing has had a chance to kind of go through entire cycles recruiting, he can put his finger on success at the point guard position. Uh, and and now, especially entering next class, we're getting some of these really good guys, and we'll see what happens and see if it can all kind of come together. Well, I think that we've discussed everything we need to discuss about this game. They have Georgia has two games left. They get to play Xavier for the first time, one and done, possibly, and then they get to return the game against Connecticut, which I think was probably one of their poorer showings, and I think that that's what's great about the round robin in the big East is that usually you get, if you get, you know, a bad outing punched in the mouth, whatever you want to say, you get the chance to return the favor. Now they have to go on the road to do it. Not a big of a deal just because there aren't really fans anywhere. But I think that getting that second chance to play Connecticut. While I love the fact that they're back in the league. I also think it's great that this group before going to the big East tournament gets a chance to, you know, play better than what they showed the other night. Cause I think that they're a better team than that. Um, and well, there's no more nine o'clock as, games. As you like to say, Georgetown in the Patrick Ewing era has not won three games in a row in the big East. Yeah. And even lowly DePaul has done that in the last four years. Will they be able to finally get off the schneid and, and do that to end big East regular season play? Or will the first time Patrick Ewing, wins three games in a row in a row with the Big East <laughs> coincide with his first victory in the Big East tournament as we march our way straight to the Big East championship game against, let's call it, I mean, just give us St. John's. Let's just have Georgetown St. John's in the Big East championship game and, um, and we'll lose because that's what we do against St. John's in the Big East tournament. Actually, DePaul hasn't <laughs> done it. They're, they're, DePaul is the only other team that hasn't done it. And what I pointed out was, UConn's been in the league for five minutes and they've already done it. They've already... Yeah, okay. <laughs> um, now, UConn did it against, like, I think it was four and it included, like, DePaul twice, Butler and Marquette. So it wasn't exactly murderer's row. You don't usually get that kind of... <laughs> you don't usually get that kind of soft underbelly of a four consecutive games. Um, but yeah, no, winning three games in a row is a big deal because guess what? You can't win four in a row till you do three. So you, I didn't even think of that. Thank you for bringing that up. They are on track to get that three-game winning streak. Perfect. Well. There you go. On that note. On that note. Always ends on a high note. On, yeah, always ends on a high note. And uh want to thank you for coming on. Before long, we will get back. I know the brackets are done, but we are going to do more of the Hoyer Rewind. So there is no off-season on Kente Corner. So you know you can find us. You know we'll be there. The news never stops. And why? Always a pleasure. I hate you so much, Bobby. I can tell. See you.